I thought I saw Rick Tremaine here a minute ago. Is Rick here? Rick Tremaine? I thought I saw him a little bit. All right. Well, good to see you. Uh, we're making progress. We're in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 now. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, get into that. This is a passage that's not particularly easy, frankly. Uh, 12, 9 to 13 is, is fairly difficult. The section will take us all the way into chapter 13, verse 8. We'll be able to do, mo- I think, a, a good part of that today, if not all of it. Um, so um, we're in the section where Paul is telling them to make their bodies a living sacrifice. And we looked at the first part of it last time, verses 3 to 8, where you make your body a living sacrifice by uh, ministry and spiritual gifting. Now he starts a new section, verse 9, and your, your first phrase in that verse, the first statement is, uh, let love be sincere. Yes? Um, that's, that's kind of the statement for the whole passage that, that's ahead of us all the way through 13.8. Um, there's a lot of what looks like somewhat random exhortation, but it's not all that random, frankly. It will. It, it's. It turns out. I'm sorry to say this. It turns out it's clearer in Greek than it is in English. Uh, uh, what the structure is, but um, uh, there are general com- general exhortations, somewhat random, in verses three through eight, and then in verse nine. I'm sorry, three through fourteen, three through thirteen, beginning at verse fourteen, you move into a new section. And I really am at, uh, uh, outlining it slightly differently in my mind now than it's on the, on the screen. So 12, 9 to 18, first, uh, those who have received grace must, uh, from God must love one another uh, without, with sincerity. Um, and in that, what's happening in verses 9 through 13 is I have... Two sets, is that right? 9 to 13? Yes, 9 to 14. I, uh, 9 to 13. I have two sets of, of uh, different kinds of exhortations. So first, I have 12, 9. There are two exhortations in the rest of verse 9. Okay? There are three in 12, 10 to 11a. There are two in 11b. There are three in uh, verse 12, <laughs> what comes next? Uh, then in verse 13, there are two. So we've got two, three, two, three, two. Okay? In order to visualize this, I put it on the screen here. <laughs> so it's, it's color-coded. You have the, the, uh, the great issue, the, the, the main issue that Paul is developing. Can you see it? All right, let me, I'll, I can increase the size. No, it won't. Is that better? Some? Maybe a little more. So I have 23232, okay? And and, uh, so the the general exhortation that covers all the way through 13.8, just look over in 13.8 with me for a minute. It actually goes through verse 10. Oh, no man, anything except... 
to love one another. And then verse uh, 10, what does it say? Yeah, love is the fulfillment of the law, too. So you've got this bracketing of this whole unit with the issue of love, yes? In the middle, 13, 1 to 8, there's a passage on, uh, on our relationship to the government. And that seems like it's out of place, but it's really not, and I'll show you why as we go. So first, uh, let love be with uh, um, sincere. And in that, there are two... First... first Paul wants us to pay attention to two things. Um, Let me get my other text out here. He wants us to pay attention to two things. Hate what's evil, cleave to what's good. Love hates what's evil and cleaves to what's good. Uh, If 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter of the Bible, this is also one. It's It's a major passage on love. Are you with me here? So... Class this, just just put Romans 12, verse 9 and following up with 1 Corinthians 13 in your thinking. This is as important a passage on love as anything. In 1 Corinthians 13, the function of that passage is to explain what's wrong with the Corinthians' use of the spiritual gifts and where they need to change. I, I just point out to you, because I know I, I, have, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know, that chapter 13 becomes, comes before, between chapters 12 and 14. Amen? And I know, I know. I just, I bask in my own glory. But, but uh, 12, what'd you say? That you like to be talked about, too, That's right. Uh, um, in, in 12, you're talking about spiritual gifts. In 14, you're spirit, talking about spiritual gifts. So it's likely that chapter 13 is about that too. Does that make sense? So if that, unless Paul just is a scatterbrain, then uh, 12, 13, and 14 belong together. And 13 is not about what you do in a wedding and how you get all married and everybody's happy and lovey. It's talking about how you, do, how you live your spiritual life, how you practice your spiritual gifting. Do notice that this passage follows a passage that here in Romans 12 follows a passage that talks about spiritual gifting. So if I practice my spiritual gifting, number one, as 12.3 started, I'm not thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think. Yes? And if I don't practice my spiritual gifting, I am thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think. And further... I am not practicing love. Now, why is that significant? In a letter like Romans, written in part, probably a, a major part of its purpose is to call the, the, the disaffected sects in the church back to unity with one another. They haven't been practicing love. They have been thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. This, the weak think they have a platform for judging the strong. And the strong think they have a a status from which they can despise the weak. So in both cases, they're thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And the probability is they've been withholding ministry from one another. Well, you can't, you know, if you help them out, they eat meat. If you help them, you're just approving they're eating meat. Are you with me here? And vice versa. So there's been 
love is, is, is failing in Rome, as in 1 Corinthians, and it has effect in ministry to one another. So, love must be sincere. Verse, first, the first two now, in verse, in verse uh, 10, uh, verse 9, hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Um, love does not cling to what's evil. It hates what hates what's evil. Then we have the two, the three, the first set of three. It's in yellow on the screen. Verse ten, into verse eleven. Be devoted to one another in love. If we are recipients of the grace of God, uh, the mercies of God, chapter twelve, verse one, then we are called to be devoted to one another in love. You and I live in a time in which it's been easy to be a Christian. Yes? Uh, I mentioned, I think, to you a um, student I had in Memphis who was from Albuquerque. And he said the difference between the church in Albuquerque and the church in Memphis is that the church in Memphis isn't needed, at least the way the people think of it. Um, You go to church to do your duty as a Christian but you don't need the church. The family provides everything that the church is intended to supply because there were people in Memphis whose family went back five and six generations. I, I mentioned to you at the time a man I knew who, who lived in the house he was born in. His bedroom was the bedroom he was born in, and the bed was the bed he was born on. <laughs> He was, I don't know how many generations of his family had been in that in 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 Memphis, but they you were in Memphis <laughs> twice, twice. In, in Memphis, you don't have to do that much. You, you know something of this from Memphis, don't you, Ken? Uh, Ken had a long residence in Memphis. How long were you there? Well, I pastored for fifteen and a half years. For how many? Fifteen and a half. Okay. Years? Will Park. Yeah, I knew it was Will Park. Um, so you, you ha- everybody has lots of family in Memphis, and so when you're in trouble, you go to your family. When you, yes, when you, uh, when you have needs, you go to your family. Mm-hmm. He said in Albuquerque, everybody was first generation, and the church had to fill the role of the family. What's going on in Rome is what was going on in Corinth and in Philippi and in Thessalonica. <laughs> And that is that people come to Christ and they, they're kicked out of their families. So Paul is creating a new family for them, someplace where they can go. And what we've done is allowed the family to provide all these things instead of recognizing that we must be the church. I am more closely related to you than I am to any other member of my human family except to the extent that they're born again. So we ought to be tighter. So... Be devoted to one another in love. Second exhortation. And for those of you who can see it, there's a B out before that second exhortation. Honor one another before yourselves. Yes? Is, is, is this all agape love? Well, it's just love. There, there's no distinctiveness about agape love. Agape was a word that was hardly ever used in Greek until the New Testament was written. Paul, Paul and John seem to have locked onto that word because it didn't have a lot of connotations. It was something they could fill with their own meaning. 
uh, because it just wasn't very common. We've got an awful lot of ancient Greek, an awful lot of ancient Greek. My Latin dictionary is about so tall and it's about so thick, very thick uh, pages, uh, paper, and um, rather large print. My Greek dictionary is about so tall, it's about that wide, and very small print. There's, there's a whole lot more ancient Greek than there is Latin. So since we have so much more Latin, uh, Greek, we can say things like that, and they become meaningful. Agape is not something unique or unusual. It's just the word that was not common in common everyday Greek, and so didn't have a lot of uh, extra meanings that you'd have to filter out. So it's just, it's just love. But yeah, it's the word agape. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Paul's writing, and this was this was a, a an advance. A. T. Robertson contributed to. You know the name A. T. Robertson. A. T. Robertson was the greatest Greek scholar of the first half of the twentieth century in America, at least. And uh, one of his contributions was to demonstrate that the Greek of the New Testament is just the common everyday Greek of every of every town. In the Mediterranean, basically. Paul? Maybe you said this, but we're talking about how we are to love other believers, mm-hmm. not necessarily love other humans. This is the family. Okay. We're talking about the family. Doesn't mean you can't love other people, but this is the family. Yes, in some measure, yes. Uh, we, we are obligated to love whatever our father loves. And our enemies. That, he's going to even address this in well, some... In Psalms 15, it talks about the mark of a true believer, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, is to despise vile people. You look at it, it sounds like... Yeah. One or two verses can't turn over the whole Bible. God also loves the lost. So I've got, I've got to hold those in tension. He does, I've got to. I can't, I can't take one or the other. But the dominance of the, of the teaching of the New Testament, of the, New, of the Bible, is that God loves the lost. There are two or three places where he says he hates them. But most of the places it says he loves them. Um, yes. John, I'm sorry. Oh, they're more or less interchangeable. In, um, in John 5, I think it is, Jesus says the Father loves the Son. And he uses the word phileo. He just likes him. He he's not real keen on him, but he just likes him. <laughs> they're friends. You know? so, and, and, and so it's hard to know exactly when they are being distinguished and when they are being simply used as synonyms. I, there was another comment I didn't hear where it came Yes, thank you. So I've got to have both together. I can't have one as opposed to another. So, yeah. Context, yes. So, uh, so be devoted to one another in love. This is the family. Yes? Are you with me here? Um, I can't be devoted to people who are not in the family in the same way. This is family. He's talking about the, 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 the brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. So, so second, 
Honor one another above yourselves. That is, always keep in mind, you may have some, you may have some <laughs> achievements, but just like the old Excedrin commercial, no headache is small when it's yours. <laughs> no, no achievement is great when it's somebody else's. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, yeah, you did that, but have you heard what I did? Right? It's not relevant. Other people's achievements, other people's blessings must become things that we value, we embrace. Because when, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when one member of the body is honored, all the members of the body are honored. The third exhortation in this set of three, never be lacking in zeal. And that, there, there are reasons for putting these three together. I'm not going to go into them. They're grammatical. But the, so, so the grammar is not critical for English. It is for Greek, but it isn't for English. But these three go together. So what should I be zealous about? Well, zealous about devotion to one another in love. Zealous about honoring each other more than oneself. The third part, now again to the blue, keep your spiritual fervor. I like that better. Some of the, the, the word can mean to boil, <laughs> boiling in, in, in fervor. Keep your spiritual, boiling in the spirit. So the Holy Spirit's now a vat of oil and you're boiling in it. So. Quench, yeah. This is the other side. This is uh, being fervent in um, in your spiritual fervor, serve the Lord. So, in your fer- let that fervor develop, and 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 move you to serve the Lord. Then, in effect, what does that mean? Well, this is verse eleven. Yes, and I just observe that verse eleven follows verse eight. So, get involved. Get involved in service. This is one of the neat things about this class. I've, I've been amazed about it all the time that we've been in it. There's so many people who are, in, who are specifically involved in ministry. I, I don't know quite how the Lord has done this or, or why, he, but he's put so many of us together who are involved in ministry. I, I want to, to you to know that I commend you for this. This is exciting. It's great to be able to speak to a group of people like this. Am I making sense to you? Um, so thank you. Keep it up. Mm-hmm. But, but let these exhortations begin to flow into your being so you sense uh, that this is not just a good thing to do. This is the essence of what it means to be people who are, who, whose love is sincere. The, thir- the fourth set, now a set of three, be joyful in hope. When do you have to depend on hope? When you don't have it, when there's no obvious reason for it. (laughs) Yes? So, when you are joyful in hope, first you must cultivate your hope and know what the hope is. And then you can be joyful in it as you begin to um, uh, think about that hope. So, the one thing I didn't want to do in the middle of depression was to be hopeful. Um, I don't... I don't understand all that I think I know about depression, but I loved it and hated it. I hated it because it was so miserable. I loved it because it, it gave me some benefits that were just sick. 
I see Smith nodding here. <laughs> uh, apparently saying the right things. Uh, um, but, uh, but in loving it, I didn't want to give it up because I'd, I would not have the benefits that I thought accrued to having the uh, depression. Does that make sense to you? No. And, and Well, I know it doesn't make sense, but sin doesn't make sense. When I slip back into depression, rarely now, I don't want to get out of it. That's default for me. That's where I know how to live. <laughs> Smith? I was going to say, I read an article several years ago talking about the sociological benefits of being sick. Okay, yeah. You're cared for by the community, mm-hmm. at least in theory. Yeah. You get, uh, you get a pass in terms of sort of responsibility. Yes. You're getting too close now. I don't want to hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll go still. I never thought about that. You done quit preaching and gone to meddling. I'll go still. You know, I have been there. Yeah. And Steve uh, Ferraro, you know, precisely nailed it on the head on this past Wednesday in the last, you know, men's uh, Bible meeting that he said that the pressure thing is. God puts you in that wilderness and taught us that God knows the very beginning, the middle of it, or that wilderness, and the end of that wilderness. That gave, you know, gave a perspective mm-hmm. of what the benefit is, or what the benefit of, of that depression is, yeah. even though you hate it to, know, you know, yeah. to the end. And I've, I've been there, and I keep telling my wife, and I tell my shrink now, <laughs> he says it. You know, so I tell him, I am so undepressed, it's not even fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back to this issue of hope. It's hope that I needed to get out of it, but it was was the one thing I didn't want to do to get out of it. Are you with me? So I, I need to make a specific effort to embrace hope in such times. I, I began to discover this. Gosh, how long ago? Too long ago. 38 years ago. When I was mowing the lawn one day, I may have even mentioned this. It was that summer, 1980, when it was so hot, remember? And I had to mow the lawn. The house was for sale. Uh, it just very early in, the, in it being on the market. And the sewage backed up in the bathroom that had a carpet. And just, just to make things worse, I had to mow the lawn, and I, I despise yard work. I despise yard work. It's a necessary evil, but the, word is, the, the functional word is evil, not necessary. All right? <laughs> so lawns must be mowed. I understand that. I just don't want to do it myself, so I pay somebody to do it now. Uh, but I was out mowing the lawn and tramping through, stamp, stomping through the yard, angry at God because it was hot, the house wouldn't sell, and I had to mow this stupid yard. And I had just preached a sermon about praising God, and I went, what am I going to praise God for <sighs> in the midst of these times when you're so angry at God? So, say again? What? I said, no, well, so I started praising. I thought, what am I even going to praise God for? And I went, well, I'll start with Genesis 1. Thank you, God, for making the sun that makes it so hot today. <laughs> Thank you, God, for making the grass that I have to cut. And as I was saying, as I was saying those things, I thought, what a hypocrite I am. I felt utterly like a hypocrite. But, you know, I didn't get to Genesis 11 before I was out of it. 
That's great. Yeah. And so, um, make, so what does he say here? Um, I'll be joyful in hope, but I have to have hope before I can be joyful in it. So I must start embracing the hope and not the failures of the past. Yes? Not, not the troubles even of the present. In the troubles of the present, I must em- embrace the hope that's, that is set before me and make that my uh, object of joy. Then he says, patient in affliction. Now do you see why he follows that up with patient in affliction? And third, faithful in prayer. So I was praying to God, thanking him for things I was not thankful for, but should be. Yes? But not grass, please. (laughs) Then then the final group of two, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Uh, So I I read a book that I'm, I'm hesitant to recommend, although it's an awfully important book. There are things in it, as every book that you will ever read, there are things you'll disagree with, right? But it's called Houses That Change the World. It's by a guy named Zimson. It's a, he's a German, but it's in English. S-I-M-S-O-N, Houses That Change the World. I'm a pretty slow reader, but I got it on a Friday, and I, I finished it Sunday. Wow. Couldn't put it down. Uh, the thing that scared me about the book, not, not what I disagreed with, the thing that I agreed with but scared me was if we took seriously what the New Testament teaches about church, it would have to change our home economies. We'd have to live differently because, like Larry Burkett used to say, um, God has given you an income. He expects you to live within that income. Yes? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> and as you live within that income, you and, you and your family should pray asking, Father, what is the standard of living that you want us to have that we may enjoy, that you want us to have, so that we will have funds left over to contribute to others in need? And uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, if I took this seriously... You know what you do with your children and grandchildren? Mm-hmm. Yes, when, when one of the children has a need. My wife would come to me when our oldest was a baby. Baby needs shoes. Mm-hmm. She can't walk. What does she need shoes for? <laughs> what <would> she... <laughs> that's, that's not a need. But when the baby's outgrown all of, her ch- all of her clothes, it's suddenly a need. Yes? So what do you do? Buy shoes. You, you buy shoes. Because... <laughs> All of us know if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. <laughs> so, but when, when the children have a real need, what do you do? You change your budget for your groceries this week and you buy clothes or take them to the doctor or whatever it turns out to be. Yes? Uh, when you, what about your grandchildren? Doesn't it still remain pretty much the same? Um, so the, the issues are... If we're really family, look, look, at, look at the first line of verse, of verse 1 of this chapter. What does it say? I, the first line, not just the first verses. I, I, brothers, brothers, we're family. If we're family, we have responsibility for each other's needs. 
Does this make sense? All right. So this is the this is the first part of this passage. We'll go back to PowerPoint for a little bit. Um, in twelve fourteen to sixteen, he enters on another aspect of his discussion. Bless those who persecute you. Yeah, it is. So what does it mean to bless them? Bless your heart. God, God's going God, to send you to hell where you're burned for eternity. Bless your heart. Is that, is that what it means? What does it mean to bless somebody? That, tell them how they helped you. you. You speak healing, kind words to them. Am I making sense? But they're, they're persecuting us. No, they're not persecuting us. When, when, Paul, when Jesus confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, whom did Jesus say Paul was persecuting? Me. Why are you persecuting me? The problem is not us. The problem is the one that we serve. They're, they're persecuting him. And they don't know what that means. They don't know the implications of it. They don't know the consequences of it. So you bless them by, by trying to help them speak words of healing, speak words of, of benefit to them. Rick? He's talking about renewing of the mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. When it comes to the renewing of the mind, how much did the Holy Spirit do and how much do I have? <laughs> <laughs> look, at, look at Philippians. Well, uh, first of all, look at 12.2. 12, 12.2? 2. Yeah. The transformation comes from the Holy Spirit. Ah, I knew it. <laughs> but the renewing of your mind means laying hold of what Paul is teaching. At least. Um, Look at Philippians 2.12. That, that means turn there. Philippians 2.12. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to you in just a second, brother. I'm sorry. I want to make sure I get this point before I lose it. Oh, this is work out your salvation. Work out, now look at verse 13. So 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for God is the one who is performing in you the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. So it works hand in hand. It's neither one nor the other. It's both together. Yes, now, I'm sorry to put you off so long, brother. Oh, that's okay. The re- part of the renewing of the mind also is being in the word all the time. Yeah. Without that, then God can't do the renewing of the mind. Abs- absolutely. That's right. So I've got to have, got to have the scriptures. Um it's the scripture that tells me I need my mind renewed. <laughs> There's a good chance the scripture is going to be a crucial tool in all this. Uh, but it's going to have to be applied. So I may have to start, what was the word about hope? Being joyful in hope. So that I know that I'm applying the scripture. Uh, Jen was watching a movement, move, movement, a movie yesterday called Silent. Did you see the whole thing? Okay. It was a dreadful movie. Uh, a missionary gave up his faith, um, but at one point they ha- they had uh, three missionaries over a um, 
uh, a pool of, of boiling water. It was, it was um, a hot spring. And they'd take a, a, a um, wooden bucket and pull the, the water out and dump it over the men. Bless your persecutors. Yeah, even then. Even then. So, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The easiest thing to do is, is to speak down curses from God upon them. Bless in this context, when, when it has curse here, we're not talking about using dirty language. We're talking about calling down God's judgment on the persecutors. It, it, with the parallelism in these two lines, I conclude that the bless will mean pray for God to give them all things that are necessary for life and for service to him. Um, there, there was a tape my mother had, reel to reel, you can tell how old the tape was now, um, of a missionary, supposedly. I, I never did know who the guy was or whether this was fabricated or not, but the guy said he, he knew about a, China, a missionary in China who had been captured by the communists and was being interrogated and the room where they had him was just a filthy place, but they had one spot that they cleaned off uh, where um, his, his interrogator kept saying to him, is your God real? Your God's not real. And the man said, oh, no, he is. He, he is, he is real. He, he really is real. Prove to me. And so uh, the guy got down in that clean spot and prayed, God, help this, this man know that you're real, even if you have to blind him in the and, and the man became blind instantaneously. Um, I never did hear more of what happened in that circumstance, but think about all of the persecution that's happened to the martyrs over the centuries, more in the 20th century than in all, all 19 centuries before put together is the estimate. Think about what they have done, what they have gone through, and yet we are called in the midst of such things, to, to pray for, bless them, call down God's blessings upon them. Give, give this man who's making my life miserable, hellish, uh, give him all things that are necessary for life and godliness, life and service. So bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Um, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And it's a, uh, there are three exhortations in these verses. This is unusual because up to this point, there haven't been many verbs in this passage that we're looking at. It's an unusual passage in Greek. Um, so these are the things that he appears to be getting at, what he's aiming at is how do you deal with people who make your life difficult, like people in body, members of the body of Christ who despise you because you don't eat meat, or members of the body of Christ who you think cannot possibly be saved, and yet, they, and yet they're your brothers. Are you with me here? Don't be conceited. Don't be high-minded. Get over this about yourself. Associate with people of low degree. And then we return, verses 17 and following, to uh, another interchange. Uh, one, two, three. There are five, again, five parts. 
the first part focuses on evil, the second part on good, the third part on revenge, the fourth part on good, and the fifth on evil. Let's look at it. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But you don't know what he did to me. Yes, but I do know what they did to Jesus. And I do know what they have done to some of the martyrs. So, don't return evil for evil to anyone. Uh, How can you bless them and try to do evil at the same time to them? Uh, The second, uh, 17b to 18, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now that, I know I'm going to get some objections. These objections will come up later. But, but there, people, different kinds of people have different kinds of, of views of right. How do you do right in the eyes of everyone? You do what's right. It doesn't matter. And ultimately, in the eyes of God, most people are going to say, you people are amazing. I, I, I can't understand you. You're suffering so much, and here's what you're doing. makes no sense. So, uh, if it's possible, verse 18, and here's the the qualification of it. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If you ever get into a hostile situation, let it be that it's coming from them that you didn't cause it. So, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And there's a key statement then that follows in verse 19. Uh, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you notice how all the way back at verse 9, he's talking about evil? This whole passage, in one way or another, evil is in the background, and now he comes to a kind of climactic statement. There's no place for revenge for for us. Revenge is just off the plate. There's nothing for us to do. First reason is God has reserved that for himself. Yes? Then uh, the balance here, verse uh, 20, on the contrary, and this is taken from Proverbs chapter 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Don't you know who he is? Yeah, I do. Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, what in the world does that mean? Uh, I'm not sure I'd want burning coals on my head. So what does that specifically mean? Uh, there are two interpretations that I know about. Um, one that kind of fits the usage of coals and fire uh, better, and that is God's judgment. But then that would that would incline us to think, well, I'll, I'll do good to him. So. God's judgment will be worse. Amen? That'll, that'll fix him. That'll fix his wagon, boy. The, the, I have heard someone say, this is a third one, uh, uh, I have heard someone say years ago, heaping coals of fire, coals of fire are what's necessary for cooking your food. So you're giving them the need, the means for sustaining life. I'm not sure that's the point, and I don't think it's ever used that way in Scripture. The other is and, and this one is not possible to support from, from other scripture, but in a, in a, most commentators seem to go this direction. It means 
by doing good to them, they will feel the shame and start start asking questions. Um, so, or perhaps with anger. Pardon? You know, he can cause the thing that came to the analogy came. Uh, he referred the thing. He was so angry, he was burning with rage. Uh huh. And since they expect you to be reciprocate with evil and anger, and you don't, it just angers him even more. So there, this. Nobody seems to know for sure what this verse means exactly, but it, it's something you ought to do, and the result is important, but I'm not sure what the result is, okay? And then finally, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what if the strong in the church despise you because you eat meat, you don't eat meat? Get him a salt grass card. <laughs> Get him a salt grass card, he said. <laughs> <laughs> you overcome evil with good. Yes? What if people in the church consider you're not even perhaps even saved? How can you claim to be a Christian and eat meat? They, they condemn you. You overcome evil with good. How do you do it in that case? Well, go back. Yes? Stop eating meat in front of them, for one thing. But for another, go back to verse 3, 3 to 8. Serve them in your spiritual gifting. Bless them. Don't curse. Jim? Yes? I think what he's asking, there are several problems with that, and I don't have time to go into all of them. But, but I think what he's asking is, don't judge them right now. Put off judgment. Uh, some of those people, you've, read the, you've seen the movie The Robe. I mean, after all, um, what was his name? Not Heston. That was the, um, Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Richard Burton became a Christian at the end. Amen? So, hey, and, and uh, uh, his, his beloved. In the, in, uh, now, the next passage seems like it's out of place, but, but it's important. It's about our res- response to the government because they are, this is the only place I know in the New Testament. I haven't looked specifically to find this out, and I should. I'm, I'm going to go home and do this today, but it's the only place I know in the New Testament anybody's called a minister of God, and guess who it is? Hmm? <laughs> yeah, it's it's the officials of the Roman Empire are ministers of God for good, because if God has reserved vengeance for Himself, He's delegated it to governmental authorities. They may not do a pro- an appropriate job for that for of it for us, but it is essential that we have a stable government. It doesn't have to be a friendly government. It's essential that we have a stable government. Are you with me? Paul tells Timothy, pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may pass a peaceable life. I don't have to have a friendly government. I have to have a stable government. And if there's a stable government, we can carry on our Christian lives under duress, but still I can carry on my Christian life and do the service that God has set me here to do. Does this make sense to you? So 13.1 to 7 let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which comes, uh, which God has established. 
The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Do you want to be free? I'm sorry, for rulers hold no terror for those who do what's right. (laughs) But remember, Paul is writing probably when Nero is on the throne, or at least Claudius. Both of them harsh on Christians. Um, Rulers hold no terror for those who do do what's right, but for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of of one in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant. I'm reading the NIV here, but King James says God's minister. Um, For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. It bothered me deeply early in my military days to salute officers. I don't know whether that man's worthy of a salute or not, until I realized I'm not saluting the man, I'm saluting the office. And by the same token, I don't care what your politics are. It doesn't matter. The office of president, the office of senator, the office of of representative, the office of Supreme Court judge, the office of governor, these are appointed by God. God will hold them responsible. My proper, proper response to them is to honor them. So he says, this is also why you pay taxes, glory. On, a, on April 29th, I say, this is why you pay taxes. <laughs> uh, for the authorities are God's servants. Three times he calls them this. <coughs> who, who, will give, uh, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe to them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We have debts we must, we must be paying on. Taxes, revenues, toll tags. <laughs> yes? Then he closes the passage, verses 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding. The NIV translation here is quite good. Um, let no debt remain outstanding. That is, never have a debt that you can't pay off. Except one. There's one debt you must have And keep before your mind, because you will always be owing it and never being able to pay it off, Um, the debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Folks, when those who walk according to the Spirit fulfill the law, they do it not by keeping all the rules. They do it because they live by love. Love as defined in Romans 13. Rome, uh, love as defined, rather 12 and 13, uh, love as defined in 1 Corinthians 13. Are you with me here? Not as it's defined in the press, but love as God has defined it. You do this, you fulfill the law. Um, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. And he quotes Jesus here, who quotes Moses. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So I have really only one responsibility as a Christian um, in the ultimate sense, and that is to love. All the rest is detail. Are you with me? There, is, there are some necessities that lead up to it. One is the renewing of the mind. Yes? And it's, an, it's not until my mind is being renewed that I can even embrace the notion. That's Romans 12, too. It's not until my mind is renewed that I can even embrace the notion of making my body a living sacrifice. But once I embrace the notion of making my body a living sacrifice, then that's what we've just been reading since 12 verse 9. Wouldn't you, would you agree to that? So um, this is the second part of the application section of the book. We'll turn to the third part next time and uh, move on with that. Richard? Wouldn't this have been very radical in the day? Yeah. Radical today. The the group in Rome to whom he's writing is probably mostly Gentile but partly Jewish. So this would have been radical for Jews. Um, They're thinking of of how... We've talked, I think, about... uh, harvesting the corners of your fields if you're a godly Israel you're not supposed to harvest the corners of your fields if you're a godly Israelite the one question you want answered is how do you define a corner what specifically is a corner and so uh, um, well I left one strand of grain still growing in the corner I didn't harvest the corner uh, but why didn't God define the corner because this will be a bellwether a, a symptom to indicate the, the spirituality of Israel. When they are more generous, they are more spiritual. When they are less generous, they are less spiritual. So he didn't define it. The rabbis did. It's the 60th of the field. Yeah. So submitting to government, even evil government, mm-hmm. which is the history of the world. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, what's, what's in view here? Yeah. What's in view here is when they, when they um, uh, command us to do something contrary to Scripture. Yeah, well, hear, hear me. When they command us to do what is contrary to Scripture, we don't do it, but we submit to government by taking whatever penalty they give us and not arguing about it. It's what Paul did. Are you with me? Yep. So the issue is not I must obey. Submitting doesn't mean obeying. Submitting means letting the proper authorities do what's proper. And when they don't do what's proper, I still have to, I still have to oppose them, but they will do what is next, and that, they'll, that is they'll put penalties on us, and we must take them. So, kind of indirectly, though, oppression is our God-given uh, ministry. Yes. 2 Timothy 3.12. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. With this we must close. It's, it's past 12 o'clock. Um, but 2 Timothy 3.12. You know 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Amen. Glory. Uh, but 3.12 is there as well. <laughs> where he says, Yes, and everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we're, if we're living godly 
in an ungodly world, then the government's going to oppress us, and that's our lot. They oppress Jesus. What else would it mean when Jesus says, whoever would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me? What, what is the cross except the oppression of the government that oppressed Jesus? Jim? Yes. Then it hasn't been a godly government. Well, I mean, in the sense of it's had a godly veneer, but not. It's not been a godly government. We didn't. They they were afraid of doing anything that would get the church turned against them. But they were not godly. Yeah. Uh, what, what if what if we why do we have a a three? A, 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 what do they call it? Three branches of the government. Couldn't think. Why do we have three branches of the government? Yes, but why? Because power corrupts, and you want to make each branch weak so that the corruption will have least effect. From the beginning, they knew that. The Constitution was written by people who believed that men, mankind were sinners. But we got, we got safety. We didn't get service from the government. All right, let's pray. Father, this is a big dose, and it's hard sometimes for us to, to bear. But it's really quite simple because we know what it is to love and be loved. Unfortunately, in my own life, I know I want to be loved, but I'm not sure I want to love. So, Father, I need my mind renewed. So... Um, we, we plead with you to do this marvelous work in us. I, it scares me because I think I know what it will take. But we need it. We must have it. So, so we plead with you for that good ministry of your spirit, renewing our minds so that we may make our bodies living sacrifices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.